Ben Mercer, it's great to see you. Thank you so much for talking to me today. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Good. So I just I just finished your book, uh, Fringes, um, and, and we're going to talk about it. But before we do, I, I guess uh, the first question I want to ask you is, what, what's the experience of being like a former professional athlete? Like you were a professional athlete, right? Is that how you would, you would describe your, 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 your job? Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, I was full time. That was my job. Um, yeah. Do, do you keep up with it now? Do you do you stay fit? Do you do you still play rugby? Do you follow the sport of rugby? How's your body doing? <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the nice things about not playing anymore is I'm no longer in kind of sort of pain to varying degrees. Um, I do still play a little bit of touch rugby. So that's, you know, for people who don't know, obviously rugby without the tackling and all the contact. So it's it's a much kind of quicker faster paced game and a lot of running i've lost a few kilos since i stopped playing so i've probably i mean like seven kilos lighter than when i was playing um which is quite a lot uh yeah and I, I keep up with the sport but you know being a bit older most of my friends have kind of stopped playing as well you stop recognizing so many names so sometimes mm-hmm. you know you feel very old when you see things like the england squad where you would you know every single player and now you sort of don't know quite a few of them and you think oh like I've never heard of him but clearly he's brilliant <laughs> so you know I'm probably losing touch there a little bit I watch a lot less than I used to but I keep I, I do still keep up with it yeah do you miss being a professional athlete I, I don't particularly I miss the kind of I think a lot of people miss the sort of with the boys aspect you know going in particularly in France we sort of say hi to everyone immediately first thing in the morning high fives all round, running round. It's easy to remember the, the good bits, though, you know, where you're running around in the sunshine as opposed to sort of the driving rain. Um, but I think it's that kind of camaraderie that is quite a common thing that everyone misses. But there's so there's a lot of things about it I'm, I'm happy to leave behind, like, you know, 12-hour bus trips and, yeah, like I said, the sort of physical pain. And, yeah, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll get into all that. We'll get into yeah, all that. Yeah. Um, but but I guess, like, how about, how about the competitive aspect or the – the game time do you, do you miss like the the lights and and the and the fans well i had a funny career i wasn't like a top top level professional so although we did play in front of the old big crowd sometimes there was no one there and, and it was fun you know and particularly when you play one of the better teams that's a fun buzz and you do feel that sense of occasion but by the end you've played so many games that quite a lot of them felt quite rote you know and you stop feeling quite so excited to play and yeah so I'd say, yeah, you probably do miss that little sense of occasion, but it was kind of happening less and less for me personally. So it's not something, it wasn't like a giant come down for me, I suppose. I hear you. Yeah. So I I wrestled in high school and in college um, and I've done some coaching uh, of high school wrestling and I, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's something I I miss deeply, you know, the, um, you know, like an analogy of like, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like a feeling, which I feel like I'll never get back. You know what I'm saying? That, that thrill, but that's interesting. Obviously um, that that's, that's very different from playing, from playing uh, when it's your job, you know? Yeah. It's, it's a funny one. I think there's, yeah, I suppose those games, like sometimes you do get that sort of sense of drama and that physical test, you know, where you're really pushing yourself. It's obviously hard in, in the rest of your life. You, you kind of don't have those, external stresses that push you on to those sorts of levels of performance or, or just effort, I suppose. Um, but yeah, uh, I think you, you're always aware that you'd have to kind of leave it behind in the end. And right. Like I say, there was no giant, 
you know, I wasn't sort of habituated to 80,000 people cheering at me, which I think would probably be a, a buzz that would be difficult to leave behind, you know? There's a crying baby in the background. Do you hear it? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Hold on a second. I'm back um, from that interruption. Um, do you feel like you've taken uh, sort of certain skill set, like a certain lessons with you or a certain uh, mental toughness? And, and does that translate into other aspects of your, of your day-to-day life now? Uh, yeah, I do. I do think a little bit. I think some of the habits in terms of staying fit and things like that, I don't think I'll ever leave those behind. I think if I, if I spend a day without doing some sort of exercise you know like I can I can skip a day that's fine but if I didn't do any exercise for a week I'd start feeling terrible and I think those are really valuable kind of habits to have that kind of discipline and rigor to keep yourself in some decent physical condition like particularly the way like the world's gone and being kind of fit and healthy is actually just a great safeguard against getting unwell you know and I'm really kind of grateful to those habits and I think some of the things like I do a little bit of work with other athletes so sort of transitioning into work. And one of the things is you don't quite appreciate how well developed some of those sort of mental toughness things are. So, you know, I, I did a talk with somebody and they said, oh, you're quite resilient. And I thought, oh, I've never really considered myself as particularly resilient, but, mm-hmm. uh, but maybe I am, you know, and I think some of those things are sort of skills that athletes are unaware that they have. Um, yeah. I do think one of the great things, particularly about France was, kind of developing those people skills like those teamwork skills and being able to find common ground with people who you know you've got nothing in common with maybe apart from the fact that you work together you play the same sport and I think sport's great for that kind of common interest but to then develop a, a, a kind of more of a relationship I think those people skills and leadership skills can be really valuable so yeah I'd, I'd say those things have kind of have kind of carried on I suppose last question before we get into the book um do you take cold showers yeah, I do. Yeah, I take, I take cold showers also. How great are cold showers? Oh, yeah, I've, I've been in some for a little while. Um, like I, I get up in the morning and, you know, knock out a few press ups, get in the shower and, yeah, turn it cold at the end. And I, I actually don't really like uh, getting out of the shower without turning it cold now. Which is... how, about, how about ice baths? You ever do ice baths? Yeah, like not very often now. We used to do them a fair bit for recovery, but mm-hmm. there's a, where I'm from near Bath in the UK. There's a there's a group of guys who go down to the river and go in the go in the river when it's cold. So I go and join join them with them when I can, or me and my other mates go down and jump in the river or jump in the sea when we're near the coast. And that that stuff, I'm I'm really into it. Yeah, I like that little kind of challenge. So so the audience now is going to be thinking like like probably you know you and me are totally crazy for for doing this. Do you want to make like one one quick little pitch like why why it's worth uh, getting getting acclimated to the cold? Yeah, it's it's that little I think it's hormesis, isn't it? Where your body kind of has to regulate itself, and it's just giving yourself that little stress straight away in the morning. But it, what it really is, is it gives you a little win. You know, you, you get a little win and you haven't even gone downstairs and made your coffee yet. <laughs> so yeah. it just gives your day that like that early win. And it means that when I get out, I feel like a lot more alert. I feel kind of ready to go. I feel really good about myself. And you get that kind of physical buzz as well, where the blood kind of comes back to your to your skin, I suppose, after you've, you've kind of cooled down, everything goes internal. And then as it sort of, comes back out to your extremities you get that little physical buzz as well so it's just a really good feeling kick your day off with it yeah and, and you can work your way up because it was it was very hard for me in the beginning like when i started you know it was it, it was it was hard but you, you acclimate your body learns to yeah. to do it and it's anyway yeah so like you said it's a great feeling 
Okay. Amazing. So you wrote a book fringes. Um, it's, it's a, it's a special thing to write a book. It's, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, how do you feel about, uh, the reception? It's been some time, right? Since you published for been more than a year, was two years, almost something like that. I, I, I published the ebook that was at the end of 2019. So there's probably uh, December. I, I, I can't remember the exact date, but uh, the end of 2019. So it has been a little while. Yeah. How, how do you feel about the reception uh, the book's been getting? I mean, it was much better than I was. I wasn't expecting anything. For me, like you say, writing a book was a really hard thing. Uh, and it was something that I always you know, thought I'd like to do. When I was growing up, my two things were sport and reading books. And I always thought, oh, I'd, love to, I'd love to do that one day, but I never made any kind of move in that direction, I suppose. And so just finishing it felt like a, a big deal to me. And it was a, the whole thing was partly a sort of learning experience as well, just how to actually do a project like that. Um, it took a couple of months to get a lot of, to get any buzz, I suppose. I gave it away for free, the digital copy for the first weekend, just to get some downloads. And it probably sold a couple of hundred copies, 300 copies a month for the first three months. And I just needed those reviews on Amazon. And then there was a, there was a real tipping point. Once I got to about 25 kind of positive reviews, then I don't know what happened, but it started sort of churning over, people started discovering it. And then it really really took off after that. And it was just an amazing feeling to see at top of the, uh, of the rugby chart. You know, when I opened up, um, I was trying to find the link to send to a journalist actually. And it just said number one in rugby. And I thought, oh, wow, uh, you know, I hadn't expected it at all. I wasn't ready for it. It was quite, uh, it was actually quite emotional. Yeah, I can imagine. So, so every, listen, everyone listening should, should buy the book. I'll tell you why. I, I love the book so much, okay? There, there's certain books that you read and, and they're very honest. And, and there's certain books that you read that they like, they change your perspective because you realize that like everyone else has actually been lying. You know, you realize like when, when you get a certain level of honesty, you realize like, oh my God, like how come no one's been honest before? Um, and it's like, it's like, a, it's an incredible thing. So I, I, I feel like, like your, your book, um, your book does that. And it, and it deals with, uh, you know, some very, some very dark, you know, kind of, kind of themes. You sort of expose the fact that there's like a dark side uh, to professional sports and specifically to professional rugby. There's like, there's all sorts of, you know, um, wild episodes. Um, there's all sorts of like, like crazy violence. Um, there's, there's like a, a copious amounts of like alcoholism. I, I don't know, alcoholism is maybe too strong a word, but alcohol consumption and uh, the effects of that uh, on, on the team. And, um, and, and you're very open on a personal level. You, you, you express things like, you know, self-doubt. Um, you, 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 you describe certain episodes and say, you know, that was probably a mistake on my part, um, things like that. And it's just like a very truthful, honest um, ki kind of book. And, and, and I feel like that's so rare, you know? Yeah, I, I felt because I was telling the kind of story and, I was, was sort of dealing with things like, yeah, the end, of, the end of something I dedicated my life to from when I was a teenager, really. But I, I, I wanted to be honest about what it's like. I felt that honesty could be my point of difference with, with a lot of other kind of sports books. And, and with that level of rugby, and I'm sure we'll get onto it, but I self-published the book because, uh, you know, the advice I got from an agent was that, you know, the rugby market will only come out for a big name player of which I'm, I wasn't, I was kind of always in the division below the top division. But I, I felt that by leaning into those things, 
you know, I could actually help my book to sort of stand out in the marketplace for one thing. And the other thing, I, I felt that if I was going to sort of talk about my teammates, my coaches, you know, things around the sport with a degree of honesty that I had to kind of be, <laughs> be as honest as I could be about myself and, and my own kind of strengths and, and failings. So, yeah, the, the, that was something that I tried to kind of make, yeah, as a sort of point of difference about the whole project, really. Yeah. And... Um, I guess, I guess like one of the, yeah, one, one of the things that sort of comes out when I read it, um, which feels, which rings very true is like this, this sort of juxtaposition, um, on the one hand between like, like the, the high moments of sport, you know, sport is like this wonderful, magical thing with like these peak experiences. Um, and, and this like other flip side of sport, which is as much a part of professional sports as, as, as the first part, which is like this drudgery, you know, this monotony this, you know, politics, this bureaucracy, um, things being out of your control, you know, not getting paid on time, uh, you know, certain types of uh, drama within the team. Um, and uh, in the case of rugby, I might get into this a little more, but like actual physical violence, uh, which is pretty intense. Um, yeah, I think with, with professional athletes, it, it all looks very glamorous and, you know, the attention accrues to the top 1%, which, you know, they're the very best and they probably deserve those things. But actually, those, those, that top 1%, they might have a lot of personal agency. I think you see it, you know, particularly in the NBA now, they're really starting to sort of flex their muscles and demand trades. And we've seen that in European football or soccer, as, you know, I'm sure you guys prefer to refer to it but you know the, the top players have a lot of personal agency but actually in with with most of sport you know you don't have any agency you don't have any agency about where you go like if you get to play about even things like you know what you get to wear to work those are things that are dictated to you and those are things that on, on the one hand they make your life kind of easier and that that being regimented they make the things you have to do easier but on the other hand yeah you are kind of um you're put on a bus for 12 hours and you know you don't you don't have a kind of big opinion you don't you don't have much kind of avenue to express yourself unless within your environment you're maybe one of the top few players and then beyond that in the sport if you're not one of the top few players I think most people it's kind of it behooves them to keep their head down and get on with it and you know not rock the boat too much yeah and, and the economics are brutal of being sort of like trying to get into that top tier and uh, the, the toll it takes on your body is brutal. Um, there's one part towards the end of the book. I'll just, just read a quick, uh, few, maybe even just a few words here. But um, at this point in the book, if, correct me if I'm, if I'm misremembering, but certainly things have unraveled in a serious way. I'm not going to give away the ending. It's, it's actually worth reading. It has a very nice dramatic arc. Um, things, things are unraveling for, you, for the team, um, for the future of the program. At the same time, though, you're winning. Like the team is, is like winning matches. Um, in this final season, which makes it sort of an unusual kind of sports narrative because you expect either like one or the other, but not, not both. Um, and, and the morale is extremely low um, on the team. And, and, you, and you tell the story um, that you guys, like, I guess, have a day off or something. You, you busted Toulouse for the afternoon as a team um, and took over a corner of a local cafe to relax over coffees. When we got back, we played in the pool like children, jumping in, wrestling and playing volleyball howling with delight when someone messed up you say this i, I mean I, I love this i think this is like again this is like the honesty that that i'm talking about this is this is like a part of you know the book is about like finding your way to some extent right and, and this next sentence is you know um it was idiotic and childish but joyful and somehow appropriate we were lost boys 
um, drifting around France looking for meaning. Um, and that is that I think is a large extent what the book's about. It's about young people trying to make it, you know, and, and trying to find what, what they want to do with their lives. And that's and, and that's like a compelling story um, for everyone, you know, beyond much far beyond rugby. Yeah, I think like, like, like you said, with sport, it, it sort of takes those things that are universal, that everybody wants to find some meaning to their life. It's the sort of the eternal question, what is the meaning of life? But what sport does is it compresses all those things into this condensed period. And, and it, like you said, it makes the peaks and troughs sort of very extreme. And yeah, um, you're all kind of corralled into these little, even the little physical spaces, you know, you're all in the same hotel, you're sharing a room with another guy, you're all in the little swimming pool playing together. <laughs> it, it, what sport does is it just focuses things that everybody can understand, but it, it, it makes it very, um, yeah, I suppose more sort of powerful and time pressured than for maybe everybody else. Yeah. And the other thing I'll say about the book, which I, again, I absolutely loved, um, in terms of, you know, we, we get to know you, uh, it feels like on a very, on a very uh, intimate level, um, because it, it's also like, like a travel memoir. It's not just a sports memoir. It's, it's you're, you're in France. Um, and if in the beginning, um, you're learning the language. You talk about in the beginning how you're dealing with the, like, like, what am I doing here? You know, because like the rugby is, is so bad in the beginning. Um, but you're, you're telling the story of a foreigner um, in, in a foreign country. And, and you talk about things like, you know, uh, a diversifying France in some ways. You talk about the Paris attacks at one point. You talk about Brexit. Um, and you give commentary on, on everything that comes up. You talk about doping and, and drug abuse and alcohol abuse. At one point, you talk about the, the social safety net in France. Um, and, you know, again, it just has like this, this, this great element of like a, like a travel memoir. You know, someone who is um, commenting uh, insightfully on, on, you know, their, their experiences uh, as a traveler. Yeah, I, I mean... It was a kind of, I go into it at the beginning of the book, I, I grew up watching, you know, I was a Bath fan, but they played in European competition and I got to see Stade Toulousain, who, you know, from the city of Toulouse, they're kind of the Manchester United, I suppose, of French rugby, the kind of glamour team. They've always got these young players full of flair. They're very exciting. And I always thought, oh, that looks great. I'd love to go to France and play. And I always loved the idea of going to France, learning the language, getting stuck into it. And when I had the opportunity to go there, yeah, I was really interested in the place. I loved living there. I, I admire a lot about them and how they kind of approach life. And that was one of the kind of best things about being there was getting to, yeah, bus around, go and visit these actual other places and see these towns and speak to people. And there is that when you get there and you can't talk to anyone. <laughs> it's obviously like quite difficult, but we, we had plenty of time. We were really lucky to get French lessons provided by the team as well. So yeah, getting stuck into France and the place was always part of the appeal. And I mean, those events, yeah, they were obviously sort of quite seismic really. And it was bizarre to be somewhere where you don't necessarily belong and then have, you know, like the Paris attacks were a sort of attack on Frenchness. That was how it was spun and how it was really, I suppose, um, you know, while we were there. And to, and to kind of not be French, but be there and witness all those feelings was quite fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I, I didn't know much. I knew very little about rugby uh, before reading the book. I, I, I and, and I, one of the things I love about the book is you don't bother explaining rugby, you know, and, and I love that because I, I did my own research. You don't need to, you know, teach anyone anything about rugby. Um, and it, I guess, I mean, rugby is a fascinating sport as an American, you know, we think of it as like American football without helmets. Um, 
And, you know, as a wrestler, I think of like, uh, uh, you know, rugby tackles as like, you know, wrestling takedowns. Um, but it's, it's a very, very brutal sport. Um, like, for example, one of the episodes in the book that would probably uh, horrify some people, um, to, to me, it wasn't, I think, as horrifying as it would be to most. You, you describe uh, the experience of having someone, having someone trying to gouge your eyes out at the bottom of, a, I guess it must have been a ruck, um, and you, in return, trying to break their fingers off. Um, can, can we just talk about like, like, like how brutal this is? Yeah. Um, so the, the eye gouge is kind of one of the, you, you can do most things in rugby. And, you know, when I was growing up, it was perfectly legitimate to stamp on people, you know, who are lying on the floor in order to get them out of the way of the ball. And we used to come home with these big marks, you know, like down our backs where people had raked, it was called raking. People had raked their studs down you to, to encourage you to move. And, you know, our parents didn't bat an eyelid. That was just, you know, cost of doing business. And you, you're not actually even allowed to do that at the prof professional level now. Um, but eye gouging is one of the few things that has just always sort of been beyond the pale. And in France, there's a more lenient attitude towards it. So, you know, like someone putting their fingers in your eyes, obviously, <laughs> could be quite damaging. And in France, it's something that happened more regularly. And so if it, once it happened to you the first time, you're sort of outraged. And then you realize it was going to happen, you know, with a little bit more frequent frequency than you're used to. So you just thought, right, well, if you're going to do that, I'm going to discourage you. Yeah. You know, you could be on the floor, maybe, I don't know, 10 times a game, maybe more. So if, if every so often someone might try it, you know, you need to be ready to defend yourself, I suppose. Yeah. Were you nervous going into any particular uh, game? Did you ever get nervous? No, not really. I was like, when we, when you played the good teams, uh, that was kind of when you felt nerves in a good way, you know, that would be, you, you'd think, well, I'm really up for this one. So I'm feeling a bit like, you know, buzzed about it. But in terms of with the violence, there was maybe only once because we, we played one team in the playoffs where it, it sort of descended into a fight. And it was, and it was just like a really unpleasant game to play because like you said, you're a bit like, well, if I go, if I get tackled, is someone going to do this? Is someone going to do that? And, you know, one of our guys had his head kicked and things that when things like that start happening and you don't see a referee having a good handle on it, then you just think, well, oh, I don't know about this, but that probably only happened once. I think right. it was one particular team we developed a sort of two game feud with, but yeah, there, there wasn't really another team where that was a consideration. It's interesting how different it is from wrestling. Um, because in wrestling, my experience is there's always amazing sportsmanship, you know, just even among the most fierce rivals and, and competitors. And, and you see that also in like mixed martial arts, for example, I think combat sports, like one-on-one -on -one combat sports are, are famous for having very, on average, very good sportsmanship. And um, I, I was always, and it's not just me, I think it's, it's very common, so nervous before stepping on the wrestling mat. Um and as a coach, like I, I, I would get so nervous um, for my guys, you know, and, and I don't really know why. I mean, obviously it's different sports are different um, and, and the one-on-one -on -one aspect or something, but yeah, I guess, you know, um, like one, I would, yeah, what are you saying? I think it's that one-on-one -on -one thing. Particularly. Yeah. It's very, and it is this kind of test of virility that is, and, and rugby has an element of that. You know, you've got a guy opposite you playing the same position, you have a bit of a one-on-one -on -one battle, but because there's so many people and you, and you are, it's more about the unit than it is about necessarily kind of individuals that there's probably less of that, but I, I can completely see that why in a kind of 
one-on-one situation, it would be much more nerve-wracking. Yeah. And, and a huge part of wrestling for me as a, both a coach and, and an athlete, and something I really struggle with as, as, a, as a wrestler, um, was, was the mental aspect of the game. You know, like getting fired up correctly, you know, having like, having, like you said, the good kind of nervousness as, a, as opposed to the bad kind of nervousness. Um, was, that, was that an element for you? Was there a mental aspect uh, to your rugby? Um, I, I tried to, I always tried to stay relaxed, really. Um, but then it's funny because there's one game in my early 20s where I, I was really annoyed. You know, I'd been out injured for ages. I, I was essentially, we, we had a cup game where they mixed the team around. It was my first game back in a couple of months. We were playing a rival and nobody seemed too bothered. I got, I got you know, a bit pissed off in the pregame and gave everyone a bit of a speech. And then I played really well. So afterwards, one of the boys was like, maybe you should get angry more often before you, you, know, before you play. I, I always tried to keep calm and particularly later when I was a bit more of a leader, maybe I was kind of calling plays or doing things. Um, but yeah, there was, because I, I wasn't, like I said, I, I was never kind of a really amazing player. I never got to the level I would have wanted to have got to. So when I did have a good game, I would think, oh, you know, what did I do before the game that time? You know, how did I feel? What did I do with my warm-up? Was there anything I did differently? And I would try to kind of learn the lessons that way. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's hard to tell. And I think it's different for everybody else. So that's the other thing. You know, some people want to shout and scream and someone would rather, you know, not even warm up. Someone would probably rather come in, put their boots on and walk straight straight outside and kick off. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I didn't have a big routine. I used to put, you know, my right sock on before the other. And I, I, I'd put it, I'd wait until I, oh, I'd never put the game shirt on until the actual game. Some people would warm up in it. Whereas I would wait and then, you know, right before we were going to go out, I'd put the game shirt on and it would kind of close off it'd be like okay like preps over you know now we're going to go out and play um but i never yeah i i didn't have a kind of big routine like some people do mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well yeah one of the one of the philosophical parts of the book uh towards the beginning that we get um because there's a lot of there's a lot of nice you know philosophical reflections uh in this book so towards the beginning we get we get your 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 thoughts on the comparison on the analogy between uh sports and war um, and, and you, 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 you quote someone, I forget who, um, who says that like, you know, sports is war without the, the, the weapons or something like that. Yeah. George Orwell, sport, uh, sport is war minus the shooting. Right. Right. Great. Yeah. And, and you say, you don't, you don't like that analogy. Uh, can, can you speak to that? Yeah, I think, you know, it, it's uh, what I realized when I was developing the point was quite how intertwined the language is, you know, it's, um, you, you, you're going to battle and there's all those, there's all those words that, that creep in. Um, but yeah, I think the consequences are, are where they're wildly divergent, I think. Right. And so that's where it's a little bit um, distasteful in a way. Like, but in general, I can completely understand in terms of the, the unit, the team, you know, you've got your plan, you need to go and do it. But even, even things like saying execute a plan seems kind of, <laughs> seems quite extreme in a way, but that's what people say, isn't it? It's like, well, we've got plays, you need to go out, you need to execute, you need to do this. Mm-hmm. And um, there is that interesting corollary. And I think it's the same when the, the people tend to have the same sort of struggles when they leave both things, when people leave sport and when people leave the military, it's the camaraderie they tend to miss. And it's also that suddenly they've got to make a lot of decisions that they never had to make before, like 
what clothes do you put on and you know like not being in that group and having your mind made up for you i think those are things people do struggle with a bit so while the comparisons apt i don't think the i don't think because the consequences are so different I, right. that's why i found it a little bit um a little bit off-putting yeah and you talk about visiting um like a memorial in normandy uh mm. for example you talk about your experience with you know people who are veterans uh of war and and obviously it's understandable i mean injuries happen in sports you know but but you don't get the psychological injuries you know that you get from war for example that's one difference although also the, the type of injuries that you get are different as well um so that that that, that makes sense to me um but there's a, there's a analogy that that i prefer prefer like a quote that i prefer I, I don't know who said it. i don't know if anyone famous said it but um the the quote is make sure i get it right i gotta i don't want to mess this up um sports is to war as masturbation is to sex um, and, and to me, that makes a lot of sense because it, it really feels like you're, you're, you're plugging into something, um, very primitive and, and very human, you know, when, when, when you're, you know, in, in, in sport, does that, yeah. Yeah. I, th I think, <laughs> I think that's probably fair. I think the only thing that's maybe different is I prefer to be having sex than masturbating, but I prefer to be playing sport. That's true. War. <laughs> that's a good point. That's a very good point. <laughs> All right. Um, so the, I, I made a list here of some things in the book that, again, I just felt like were uh, sort of um, great to see written out about, about sport. Things that I feel like I understand from my experiences, but I never heard anyone else formulate or even myself. Like I never really said these things explicitly. Um, you talk about a lot of paradoxes of sport that I, I think non-athletes, you know, might not know about or, or might not understand you know you give an example there's, there's a lot of these things somehow when, when you're when you're feeling bad like when you come into let's say i don't know if it was a practice or a game but you're not feeling well um sometimes you perform your best you know and like and i was like when i read it's like like yes like that's that's correct you know i've never heard anyone say that before but it's like 100 um true you, you talk about you know another example of like when you're um you, you put good players against bad players and, and the good players like play down to the level of the bad players or, or you know, or a good player on, on a worse team. And, and obviously a part of that in rugby is like knowing the plays and knowing like the, the movement of other players on the team. Um, but, but I felt the same way, you know, in, in wrestling. Um, and I think that, and one more piece I just want to, um, I actually want to read this part inside because this part was sorry, so good. Um, and, and uh, hopefully, uh, yeah, people will, will get a sense of why, why, why I love this, uh, this writing so much. This was, this was so relatable. Um, Quote, when you're fit, there's a pleasure in the monotony of running. You know you won't find it hard and you curiously push against your own limits, testing how fast you can run this one, then the next one. Um, when you're not fit, it's another matter. Or when you don't need that weekend. Uh, or when they don't need you that weekend. Sorry, my fault. Um, or that month, as in the case of, uh, I'm having such a hard time reading today, um, as is the case in preseason. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm skipping, skipping a bit. So, so again, like, like this idea of, you know, uh, the joy of feeling like you're in shape, you know, and, and like being in practice in shape. And then, and then, and then you talk about when you're the, the difficulty of like getting in shape, you know, when you have to get there. So you say, uh, we had a rowing test that summer, a thousand meters as fast as you could. The first baseline test, I didn't go hard enough, but the second time I basically had to roll off the rower and remain, uh, photo sweating on the gym floor, legs pulsing with lactic acid, doing everything I could not to shit myself. Uh, you can remember times when you felt like this. Once after a hill sprints, after a hill sprint session in the UK, I couldn't even walk a, walk about as I was so busy concentrating on not collapsing. And so, like again, these are um, like experiences which are which are so unique to uh, to sport, 
Um, and, and I, yeah, they, 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 they totally, totally resonate with my experiences. I just read, um, I just read an article the other day. It was a GQ article with, he, he's called Alexei Molchanov or Molkanov. And apparently I'd, I'd never heard of him. He's the world's best free diver. And, he, and it was exactly that. So free diving is obviously what, I mean, it's this incredible test of body and mind. And then part of it is that you don't, obviously you have to go down on one breath. And when you're down there, you have to kind of remain calm and not panic because, you know, the body's instinct is to panic and you're running out of oxygen. But the sort of argument was that you can do more than, you, you know, you will actually survive if you can kind of turn off the mammalian kind of reflex to panic. And actually you are, you're literally more physiologically resilient than you think you are. And I think that's part of the thing with these tests, you know, nobody in life, even your personal trainer, you know, probably won't make you try that hard. Um, but actually you can try that hard and you'll feel terrible, but you know, you will, you will survive. You will walk around again and, you know, you will be able to get up and walk out of the gym. And I think that there is something like that in sport, isn't there? Where you just have, you get pushed to that point and, I, and it's very hard to do that on your own. And obviously there, there's the odd individual who can do that. But I think without that group environment and having those kind of challenge days, you never get to find out those things about yourself. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, in my wrestling experience, like one of the most brutal things that I, I've been subject to, and I've seen other people subject to, and to a lesser extent, a much lesser extent I've, I've done to my, you know, kids that I've, that I've coached is you take, you take one guy out, you know, you, you pick on one guy and you say, you know, whatever wrestler, a, you know, wrestler, wrestle, wrestler B, and they go for 10 minutes and not 10 minutes. I'd say two minutes. I mean, and, and you know, they're, they're both spent. And then you, you switch out B and say, now see your turn against wrestler A and, you know, and A is obviously getting more and more and more tired. And every time, you know, uh, that, that, that two minutes are over, you switch out someone else for wrestler A and, you know, in the sport of wrestling, I think like, like many sports, you know, except you probably find some exceptions, but you, you can't, you can't stop. Like there's no, there's no turning it off if you're, if you're on the center and, and you can really work someone as, as a coach. I've never really done this because I'm too afraid of, you know, hurting any of my guys, but you could really work someone until they puke, like, you know, or, or until they collapse. Um, and I've seen that, <clears throat> excuse me. And, um, and yeah, like you're saying, uh, you tap into reservoirs of, uh, of capability that, you know, you didn't know were possible. I think when you, when you hear about the kind of very top level, so on the one hand, the science is obviously always getting better and the science of like physically preparing people and how to condition them best, that's something that gets better and better and better. And sometimes you actually don't need to train as hard as you think you do to get kind of consistently fitter. When you've got all the information available, you can find out exactly right, okay, he needs to run exactly that far and we can see his lactic acid level go up. And once it's at that point, then we stop him. So then it means tomorrow he can go again and the day after he can go again and he can get that consistency of effort and he'll improve in a relatively effortless way. Whereas I think these things you're talking about are like, okay, like they're more character tests, right? They're more, yeah, like you say, they're more kind of building the willpower than they are the body. They're not necessarily about getting fitter. They're about, okay, right if you are back against the wall, if you are on that mat and you're just having someone relentless come at you, like, you know, what can you do? And I think those tests, they're, they're not things you want to do too often, but they're definitely things that can benefit you every, every now and again, just to 
yeah, see where you're at, see what sort of person you are. Yeah. And, and I guess that's another difference between professional and, you know, amateur sport, you know, cause I, I, part of what comes across is, um, I mean, obviously your, your team had much more resources than, than most amateur teams maybe, but also, um, there's a different style of, you have a different relationship with your coach, you know, it seems in a professional setting. And, um, you do in the book, talk about, you know, some of these, uh, tools that conditioners and, uh, teams have that maybe, you know, I'm not familiar with from, you know, the amateur, uh, side of things. Um, but that was also part of what, what made the book so interesting to me was to get that other, uh, sort of perspective, which is quite different from, uh, what I'm used to. Yeah, I think particularly the physical trainers and anyone who has things to do with you physically, you, you, it seems you get to know a lot better with, with our coach in France. We knew him personally before we went there, you know, us English guys, but the, but with most of those coaches, you, you know, you don't know them really. So you don't feel like you get to know them in the same way that you do. So the gym trainer or the physiotherapist, because those are people who are literally hands-on working with you, you know, they're with you, you have kind of a lot more casual interaction with them. And, um, and the, the skill in being a good physical trainer in particular is amazing. And people go about it different ways. Some people are incredibly strict and they're sort of, you know, maybe they are a bit more military style, but they're someone you don't mess about with and they have that kind of authority that they develop. And other people, they they manage. So the, the ones that I really liked were the people that could strike a bit of a balance and bring some humor in. But then equally, when they did then ask you to go to the well, as it were, you were happy to do that because they developed this kind of bond with you. And I think, you know, one is a lot more difficult than the other. But I think one equally, you know, the kind of humor approach is something that can sustain itself over a longer period of time. Whereas someone who's always your drill sergeant, you will probably grow to resent in the end, I think. Yeah. I'm getting towards the end of my, uh, of my, my questions here, uh, which is good. This is good. Um, I'm curious, it doesn't really come up in the book that much. Um, so to whatever extent you're, you're interested in, in sharing, uh, to what, when did your like commitment to rugby start? Um, so I, yeah, I, I got, I first got taken down to a rugby club when I was about six by my dad and my dad didn't play. So his, his school, when he was growing up, they, they had a horrible accident. And so the whole school didn't play rugby. So he, he wow. never actually really played, but he took me down um, to a local team just on the off chance and, and I actually didn't really like it. And then it was the next year I started school when I was seven and I started playing at school and school like Bath is a like relatively small city, I suppose, in the UK, but it's got a famous rugby team. So rugby is like the kind of the sport in town. And when I was 13, that was when I joined the Bath Junior team, which although it wasn't a professional environment, it was something because everyone wanted to go, you know, the better kids tended to be there because it was the sort of glamour team to go and play for in the area. Um, and then I got picked into the academy when I was about 15. So that was when I started kind of coming in in school holidays or, you know, like having a lot more extra training to do. And it was one, yeah, once I left school, that was when I really kind of committed to it. And you have a brother, you have a brother who plays rugby also? Yeah, yeah, he's retired now. So he, he retired probably two years ago now, but he played for Bath. So he ended up, when, when he finished school, he stayed in Bath. He was in the academy for probably two seasons and then he got a proper contract with the first team. And he was there for, yeah, he was there till he was about 29 or 30. And he, he actually captained the team a bit as well. So he had a really good career around here. But How was that having a, is he older brother? No, no, he's younger. He's younger. younger. So, How was um, it having a younger brother like that? 
Yeah, it was great. I, I think we we always kind of encouraged each other and he came into the academy, you know, and I was one of the, you know, we were probably just about playing. We didn't play in the same teams because there's three years difference between us, but we used to train all together. So it was quite fun having him there for a little bit. And then once I'd moved on, then he then became a kind of leader in the academy later when he got a bit older. Uh, but yeah, it was always good fun. And when I came back from France, you know, I'd get the old weekend off and go and watch him. And uh, yeah, I, I always had a lot of fun with kind of following what he was doing. Yeah. So I, I, I obviously love sport and I've, I have a six-year-old son and, and we, you know, we do a lot of sports together and, and I encourage him and he, he's great. He's athletic, you know, and um, it's wonderful. But one of the things that I, I think about and I worry about um, is like when I see, so, so for example, he does like a lot of soccer and basketball and things like that, which I, which I love and all good. Um, like youth wrestling can make me feel like very uncomfortable. Um, you know, there was a time when I was like, like training in a boxing gym. And I saw like really young kids, you know, um, boxing and, and again, like youth wrestling, you see, you see a lot of like, like wild stuff. I mean, you, you'd be around, you go around wrestling clubs and you see parents and kids, and there seems to be like a lot of pressure on these kids to engage in a sport, which is like really, you know, physical, like really intense. Um, and you know, it, it can make you wonder like, to what extent does the kid want this, whatever do you, do you, do you worry about that in the, uh, in the world of rugby? I mean, you started at, at such a young age. Yeah, I did, but I never did anything I, I didn't want to do. I, I went down, you know, I played at school and that was just quite casual really until I was about, yeah, until I was 13. And then I went down to, I went down to Bath because it was something I actually wanted to do more of and get better at. And I kind of made my mind up myself, but I, um, I used to play loads of different sports. So I was one of those annoying kids. I was quite good at everything. So I'd play, yeah, soccer. I was a really good swimmer. Um, that was the sport I was probably best at. Then I, I played field hockey, I played um, tennis, you know, I, I did athletics. So I sort of did everything. And then because I was still at school, I was, uh, you know, so a couple of my teammates left school at 16 and they, they went to the local college, but they didn't have kind of that much academic work. So they were then full-time full training with rugby. But I, I kept that variety of sport through till I was about 18. And then once I left school, that's when I was kind of full-time on rugby. But yeah, I, I think it's the variety thing and and not pushing, uh, you know, not pushing a kid into anything like you say that they don't want to do. If you give if you give people the opportunity to kind of experiment and with things like wrestling and, and with rugby, I, they are kind of by definition like a bit unsafe because they're a bit more physical maybe. But you can hurt yourself playing any sport. And I think actually when people are younger and they if if they're taught the fundamentals then those are things that they will learn quicker, they'll learn them better. And then even if they stop wrestling, you know, those are little skills. So maybe less so in rugby union, which was the version I played, but in rugby league, they coach wrestling because you're stuck on the floor with the ball, but you then have to get up and kind of play the ball to let the team get on with play. So they coach wrestling later. So you just never know which sport might actually benefit another sport when you grow up. So I, I think that range, there's a great book, Range by David Epstein, that goes into all that stuff in a kind of much greater depth than I can here. But I, I do think the variety is a huge thing for, for kids, for young people kind of getting involved. Nice. Awesome. Finishing up here, I just wanted to read one last quote. It doesn't, doesn't really fit in with any of this uh, line of questioning, but this is just one last quote, quote that I love. I feel like um, would be sort of an appropriate place to uh, sort of end our conversation here. Um, I guess I'm towards uh, a little bit past the middle of the book. 
Um, you write, you write like this. And I, I just, I just love this, uh, this, this, this part here. I just want to make sure I'm, I'm going to read the, the right parts. Okay. What does it feel like to be good at a sport? When you consider your best moments on a field, you sometimes remember how it seemed so slow. The ball arrived in your hands languorously and what to do seemed obvious in that instant. Then you were away, breaking the line and streaking up the feet, uh, streaking up the field. You go on to describe like quotes from uh, elite sportsmen, you know, who describe like a similar um, uh, experience in their own sport. And then you write, um, achieving the state of slowness and clarity is where the elite athletes truly reside while the rest of us get to tap into it a few times when everything is just right. John Keats talked about negative capability, being able to inhabit a state of uncertainties, mysteries, doubts without any irritable reaching after fact and reason, the ability of an artist to rest in a state of not knowing. Um, and you go on to describe that in, in more detail, but I absolutely love that. I absolutely love that section. And, and even for a long time, even in my wrestling days, I've always loved the, the artist analogy, you know, where you have, you have like your, your palette of, of options of your, your arsenal of, of weapons, if you use the war analogy and, and you're, you're like throwing them at the canvas, you know what I'm saying? Um, and I think you described beautifully this peak experience of sport, which ultimately is what, you know, athletes are, are, are chasing. And ultimately, uh, you know, what, for example, I miss, you know, about my, my competition days, you know, for example. That's funny you bring that up. I think that's, that's probably my favorite bit in, in the book. And, and you asked me what I miss about sport. And it probably is that feeling of breaking the line and suddenly, you know, everyone goes, you know, and like the, the crowd stops and it, but in your mind, you don't kind of hear anyone necessarily. You're just kind of thinking about what you're going to do or you're seeing things. Um, that, that Keats quote, it stuck with me from school. You know, we, we, we did him in English GCSE, so sort of pre-16. And I remember that quote so clearly because it, it seemed like so applicable, yeah, beyond arts, beyond poetry. And I think sport, it is art, like when, and when done well, there's a, there's a famous Arsene Wenger quote. He used to manage Arsenal, who are my favorite football team. And he's, he said something like, the goal of anything in life is to do it so well that it becomes an art. And I think when you watch sport, when you, you know, even if you play it and you manage a little bit of brilliance, you, that's what you've done. You've created some performance art. And I think, again, with writing and with other kind of mediums, you get to sit there and you get to revise and go over things over and over again. And one of the sort of beauties of sport is, yeah, you can do that, but actually you have to do it in the instant for it to become you know, that sort of transcendent moment. And I think that is why anyone plays or that is why anyone watches. That's what you're waiting for, isn't it? Just to see that one little bit of mastery kind of in the moment. Yeah, and, and that's it. And lastly, I'll just say that um, I, I think you're an amazing example of um, the, the potential of self-publishing, you know? And I hope people, you know, take that, take that lesson. Uh, you know, what, 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 someone who writes well and has a good story to tell and a good book and uh, that, that they, they can make it um, to, to some extent, at least uh, to the extent, uh, to, to, to a high, to a high extent, to high level in self-publishing. And um, I guess just to, to end up, can you tell us maybe, you know, where we could find you uh, some last things about yourself, maybe tell us about our race, which I think is uh, your, your next project. Yeah. So you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, it's BCE Mercer. Um, yeah. I write a newsletter. So if you go on my website, which is benmercer.me, you can find it there. Uh, yeah, my and my new book is Our Race, which is a 
project about the Great Britain 4 by 100 meter relay team who won gold in Athens 2004. And it's a much more, you know, like Fringes was just me, myself, and, uh, you know, writes about my rugby experiences. But this was more of a kind of, yes, yeah, not, if not a ghost write, then more of a collaboration between the lot of us. There's me and another guy, Tristan Bevan. And then there's the four guys themselves. And we've kind of published that independently as well. And yeah, that's a much kind of more condensed narrative than Fringes because it has this kind of focal event that it leads up to. But yeah, it was, it was amazing fun and that's available as well. So you'll be able to find that if you go on Amazon. Amazing. People should follow you. They should uh, subscribe to your newsletter. Uh, ben Mercer, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate, appreciate talking to you. Thanks. I had loads of fun.